Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Robert Kreese will join us to discuss the workshop and the world. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, when does a scientific discovery become accepted fact, and who decides? Well, joining us to discuss this issue is Professor Robert P. Kreese. Professor Kreese is the chairman of the philosophy department at Stony Brook University and the author of several books on science, including The Quantum Moment and The Great Equations. His new book, The Workshop and the World, What Thinkers Can Teach Us About Science and Authority, explores this topic for a general audience. And Professor Kreese, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for inviting me, Charles. Certainly a fascinating book you have here, The Workshop and the World. Curious how you became interested in exploring this topic. Well, I was, I'd always been interested in the topic of science denial. How, how is it even possible? But I was kicked into the action by visiting a glacier called the Mer de Glace. It's just outside of Geneva, and it's one of the most famous glaciers um, around because it's, uh, it was visited in the 19th century by a lot, by a lot of pain, painters and poets. And um, so I went to visit it. And you take a cog railway up to the top of the valley, where in the old days you used to be able to step out on the glacier, but I couldn't see it. And I had to hike down about 2,000 feet and then horizontally up the valley, and the glacier is almost gone. So, and it's a a visible, perhaps the most tangible um, indication of of global warming, because um, climate makes glaciers and climate takes them away. And at the bottom, I met a glaciologist who explained to me why the glacier was melting uh, due to global warming, how fast it was melting. And we both were astonished, not only at the rate that it was uh, melting, but also the um, that uh, certain politicians and people who vote for them insist that uh, global warming is not taking place. And what he was telling me was not just his own opinion, but uh, he worked in a huge institution that, um, that uh, checked and cross-checked the results. So um, what he was telling me was, was the product of a huge infrastructure, not just his, his personal experience. So what is it then people who advocate for science can learn from the evolution of science and how we can then address these types of concerns? Well, the, the problem is we sort of think that the way to combat science denial is to just throw more science at people, just cite statistics and point to scientific reports and so forth. But that, that's only persuasive if you already think scientifically. The, the, the problem is that, that uh, people who aren't trained to be uh, – is how to convince people who aren't trained uh, to be scientists that this, is a, um, that, that this is an important issue. I mean, science denial is an urgent thing. There's, it's, it uh, not just only affects medicine. You know, you, um, you must have read of the measles outbreaks of, the, of last week, uh, global warming or downplaying or overstating of the effects of toxins. But uh, it's, it's a really urgent uh, question. And um, so the question is how to, uh, how, how to address the general public rather than um, just people who think uh, already think scientifically. 
And this is something that scientists take for granted as something of the uncertainty of science, the limits of science. So what is it then that we can learn from the way uh, science has developed, thinkers that were instrumental in the development of science? Well, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, what I found, you know, I'm a historian of science, and um, so my uh, knee-jerk reaction was to go back to the beginning of the birth of modern science and to see what happened then. You know, and, and what I discovered was that science denial is not new. It was already around at the at the time of the originators, people like uh, Galileo and Descartes and, and Bacon. And so what I thought it was um, important to do was to study the science denial that took place at that time, what how people like Galileo responded to it, what they said, and uh, what the um, and how effective these countermeasures were. Because all the forms of science denial that are around today already existed back then. But was it the authority of science diminished, uh, do you think, since then? Oh, oh, uh, that's an interesting question. You, you remember, at that time, uh, there was no science yet. The uh, modern science didn't exist. You couldn't point to things like drugs and medicine and communication um, in order to, to argue for the authority of science. They, people like Bacon and, and Galileo did have to... Uh, um, explain what science was and argue that it had a certain kind of authority. I mean, at, at the time in the world that uh, Galileo was born into, there were two major sources of authority, the church that claimed uh, moral authority over spiritual matters, and the uh, government, which claimed authority over, over other things. So Galileo, people like the Galileo and Bacon were arguing that there was a third kind of authority, the authority of science, that dealt with truths that um, that po that no politicians or clerics or agenda-driven partisans could um, could could challenge, and and which needed to be uh, taken into account. And, and so it was science's basic feature of the world that couldn't be argued with. Right, Ga Galileo was very clever. He didn't just argue for the v value of his own work. He put forth arguments that validated uh, the authority of of uh, all of his colleagues, of, of anyone, um, uh, of all science, uh, of, the, of the scientific profession. Um, I mean, he very cleverly said that, um, said that there were two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature. And the book of scripture was written by God and nature was, uh, was God's creation. So if you studied either one of them, uh, either one was equally authoritative. So um, that meant if there were conflicts between the one book, uh, people who interpreted the one book, the clerics or the other scientists, somebody had to be wrong. There was no inherent conflict between those who interpreted the one book or the other. He also wrote that the book of nature was written in mathematical symbols. So he was arguing that the, the people who studied mathematics and science had the same kind of authority that those who interpreted the Bible. And, and it was a very clever uh, argument because the um, the idea that nature was a book went way back in Catholic, in, in church doctrine, so that the, uh, he was appealing to theologians' own authorities. So how is it then that uh, science eventually then raised itself to a level of authority, of stature? that? It... Well, as, as I'm sure you know, Galileo didn't succeed in the short run. He laid forth arguments, um, but he was uh, tried and um, convicted in 1633, sentenced to, to house, um, house arrest. Uh, Bacon, too, wasn't very persuasive, uh, but that was at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, it turns out that the arguments that they made uh, did become authoritative. By the end of that century, governments were beginning to support uh, scientists, 
laboratories, uh, scientific academies. And from then on, uh, governments began to realize the um, the uh, authority of science and that they needed scientific findings to um, to govern well and for the benefit of citizens. It's, it's, it's a funny thing. Those people who engage in science denial don't deny all of science. They still go to doctors for the health. They still consult building engineers when they're building their hotels or houses. They, um, they pile on social media. They go to weather.com. But it's only in certain areas uh, where they practice science denial, areas where political, economic, religious in- interests come into play. So, uh, again, you can come up with arguments that will persuade people who are used to thinking uh, scientifically already. But what what I discovered was that people who argued for the authority of science in the past encounter the same sorts of objections that we do and had to fashion uh, some kind of response. So what I did in the book was to go back from the beginning and trace some of these attempts to establish the authority of science and the resistance that was encountered and the responses to that. And I found that the um, that the the attempts to deny science today were have all been anticipated in the past. What the book does is to point not just to these examples from the past, but also tell the whole story of how we got into the situation that we did. I mean, your book really are 10 different thinkers that you, you profile here. Uh, I'm curious if any of their stories particularly compelled you, what it says for the current situation that we have today. I was surprised and, and delighted by several stories that I came across. One was Galileo's. And what Galileo did was to, uh, he, well, he noticed that the, um, that the theologians who were opposing him kept citing the Bible. So he went right back at them. And he cited the Bible and the biblical arguments as well, too, and the arguments of theologians um, to uh, against them. So that, I think, was very clever. I mean, he said he, he and he put his arguments in a very pithy way. For instance, he, he pointed out that the, the Bible doesn't tell you much about nature. It only mentions one planet, he said, and uh, that's Venus. And it bizarrely calls um, that planet uh, Lucifer. But um, he so he said, um, the Bible doesn't tell you the Bible tells you how to go to heaven, not how heaven goes. So um, I imagine Galileo, you know, you can imagine Galileo on W on um, on CNN or something saying, uh, you know, you are the you are the real job killers. The the um, the founding fathers taught us uh, how to uh, how to um, create legislation, not not how to legislate creation. Um, so Gallia's story was one. Another bizarre story that I came across was that of August Comte, who realized that science was not innately persuasive uh, to, to people. And so he figured that the answer, was, the answer was simple. You just make science a religion. You take away God, and for God, you replace with, uh, it with humanity. You take away all the, the, um, the sacraments and rituals, and you replace them with rituals that celebrate science. And I actually visited a temple of reason that was constructed according to his plans in Paris, where you had it was it was a bizarre place. You had uh, it looks like a regular Catholic chapel, but in the alcoves you have statues of scientists rather than statues of, of saints. So um, that was one of the, the more bizarre stories that I came across. Also, the story of Mary Shelley and, and Frankenstein, which is the source of um, of one major fear about science. She and her husband Percy Shelley, well, 
She wasn't Percy Shelley's wife yet. They were very interested in science, and electricity was kind of the the popular science of the day. And uh, they um, they attended lectures about electricity, and Percy Shelley used to um, used to amuse himself by charging up the his doorknob and seeing seeing visitors get shocked. And um, so when she constructed her her novel, um, she was just relying on the the. the the science of the day that electricity might be the secret of life, um, that it could cause uh, bodies and uh, to and corpses to to move uh, and so forth. And uh, by the way, if you remember in her novel Frankenstein, the, the doctor meets his uh, creature uh, for the first time on the mirror de glass. You have a chapter regarding Hannah Arendt regarding the nature of authority and authoritarianism. And really what this tells us about maintaining serious intellectual discussions about science in public space. Yeah, you remember Hannah Arendt lived through a place in time that uh, where authority, moral authority had all but vanished. She barely escaped the Holocaust. She was imprisoned uh, before being able to flee to France. And uh, in France, she was put in an internment camp for a bit. So she knew where she knew about the disappearance of, of authority. And uh, one of her points, and she was a, a wonderful, very beautiful writer, um, one of her points is that facts don't authenticate themselves. And you need what, you need an institutional context that respects facts um, in order to, to have uh, for, uh, for authority to, um, to happen. I mean, she was she, she's often cited nowadays or, uh, in, with respect to contemporary politics on issues like politics, like politics uh, lying and, and political action and so forth. But I think her writings on authority are uh, the most interesting and the most relevant to science denial because they, they show that, that um, you know, science won't authenticate itself. Science is not, uh, is not um, naturally authoritative. You need a, a, a context a political space, you you call it, that's protected by institutions, uh, in order for science to be um, to to carry weight to have authority. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if maybe you have some final words regarding the book, the workshop, and the world. Well, it's uh, science now is an urgent issue, and uh, there are many serious there are many crises that we face nowadays that uh, have a scientific technological dimension. And if you don't don't take science seriously, you get into trouble. Science. De- Science deniers are like people who shout, uh, stay put in a burning building. Um, the problem is that you can't solve this by being scientific. As I said, that um, that only works for people who already think scientifically. So what I think the uh, solution is to keep telling stories about what it's like when you don't rely on science. And that's what the, that's what the, the book is about. It's an attempt to, to tell the story about why these 10 people thought that scientific that, that science had authority and what to do about its denial. Well, we were just talking with Professor Robert Kreese. He is the author of The Workshop in the World, What 10 Thinkers Can Teach Us About Science and Authority. And Professor Kreese, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.